My role on the Friendly Fire podcast requires that I be prepared to speak authoritatively on matters historical, political, and military across a great scope of time, culture, and conflict. It should be apparent to longtime listeners that, despite a critical commentary success rate of close to 95%, I'm often wildly speculating from a geopolitical education I got from looking for pictures of boobs in Time magazine during the Carter administration. My understanding of strategy and tactics is derived largely from running thousands of possible assault and defense scenarios of both fixed positions and fluid battlefield environments in the long-running conflict between G.I. Joe and the Cobra Commander. Much later, I cut my diplomatic teeth arguing in favor of Pax Americana with kefia-clad West German undergraduates on a bus from Cadiz to Albufera. When I say that my role on Friendly Fire requires it, what I mean is that it doesn't strictly require it, I just talk that way, which is to say, authoritatively, from the hip, with scant supporting evidence and a great reluctance to be wrong. My co-hosts were, and are, too busy LARPing their fanfic about Captain Picard's body grooming to interrupt me or even be listening to me, so I run unchecked like a stallion of mostly rightness. I frequently come in for criticism from nerds and wankers who should start their own podcasts if they know so much more than I do about Black Hawk Down. Sure, I whine a little bit at not being appreciated by everyone universally, but it has never inhibited me in the slightest from assuming everything is understandable and that I mostly understand it. Now, the Irish Troubles arguably started in 1968, the year I was born, and ended in 1998, the year that Celebrity Skin by Hole was released. So, just based on my education above described, I should be able to lay it on really thick here. And I could, but something has changed in me recently, and certain of these generation-spanning sectarian conflicts that pitted brother against brother and sneech against sneech, dragging on full of teenage passion and wanton violence and terrible cuisine on both sides and 10,000 slurred conversation-interrupting pub ballads and ultimately the worst parts of Boston and Tripoli and God and the old triangle. And then petered out in a series of exhausted and reluctant handshakes between middle-aged men as though, oh, Never mind all that then. Well, they exhaust me to think about. Because these petite wars and causes and kefias and AK-47s raised high all felt very important and maybe dumb, but maybe not. And to have them confirmed as mostly dumb, then by the transitive principle, it makes everything seem dumb. Not because there weren't plenty of justifications and injustifications for the three decades of street fighting in Ireland, just as there are plenty of justifications for every instance where people start throwing bottles at each other, and pretty soon those bottles are full of gasoline mixed with detergent. It's that fighting is dumb, ultimately, and that is a depressingly obvious conclusion that I don't want to be true. I don't want fighting to be dumb. I want it to be noble and virtuous and necessary, because throughout my life I have fallen for it the pomp and the harumphing and giant unfurled maps. I've fallen for it hook, line, and sinker over and over. And not just the little wars like the Irish Troubles where this group of redheads fought that group of redheads over who gets to rent which flat, but the big conflicts, the ones that required battleships and 
cavalry charges and hat feathers and P-47 thunderbolts. I've fallen for it my whole life. We all have. Because it's so loud and cool and definitive. And it reduces everything down to engineering and logistics. And it feels stern and important and right. But it's nonsense. Fighting is dumb. And when it seems like there's nothing to do but fight, when you've exhausted all avenues and your opponents are beyond reasoning with, and only war can put a stop to their crimes and silence their lies by turning them into corpses and burying them with their stupid ideas forever, it only means that one day, if they don't bury you with your ideas, you'll get tired of fighting and conclude it all with a reluctant handshake and all the differences of opinion will still be sitting there like puppies where you left them. And all the sunken battleships are still leaking bunker oil on the floor of the Pacific, while overhead a steady stream of 777s are flying bluefin tuna from Newfoundland to Tokyo, and the boys in the NYPD choir are singing Galway Bay. Don't look for happy endings. It's not an American story. It's an Irish one. On today's Friendly Fire, The Devil's Own. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that's always had a happy ending. Because it's an American podcast, not an Irish one. I'm Ben Harrison. Really nice I'm, accent, I'm, Ben. I'm impressed too, that was very melodious. <laughs> I'm Adam Pranica. <laughs> and a turd host. <laughs> <laughs> I'm John Roderick. I'm the Clan McLeod. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> a Scott got in here! <laughs> We're in big trouble. Uh, <laughs> boy, uh, I read that Brad Pitt really regretted how the movie went, and then, like, looking back on it, felt better about it maybe, like, years later, as, like, a, well, at least I learned something from having a bad experience making a movie. But I feel like this movie ages better than, like, I, I, I can see why it maybe didn't work as well when it came out. We talk about this all the time, how scary it is for an actor to show up on set with a script that's unfinished. And this film has that story. What, why, did, uh, why did Brad Pitt have a bad experience? What was his problem? I think that there was a, like a clash of egos on set is what I read. And, uh, and that kind of coupled with the fact that there was so much uncertainty about what the story was even going to be. Harrison Ford landed his plane on top of Brad Pitt's trailer, <laughs> started their relationship off pretty rocky. Welcome to America. The part that Harrison Ford plays was originally a much smaller part in the in the script. It was written for like a character actor, and when they attached Harrison Ford, they had to take the script back to the drawing board and rewrite it. But I think that that like I think that rewrite really gave this movie the thing that I found very compelling about it, which is that like one of the characters is like a person who works within a like very well-defined structure of power. And the other is a person that uses violence to tear down a structure of power and their friends, you know, 
I love the idea of the Harrison Ford character being Brian Dennehy instead. <laughs> <laughs> I would see that movie. Me too. I think that'd be great. <laughs> oh, man. Just what is your problem, huh? The complexity of Brad Pitt not being portrayed as a cartoonish, although he's Brad Pitt, so it's intrinsically cartoonish <laughs> for him to be Irish, right? But But if you compare it to the other Harrison Ford movie we've watched recently where he's dealing with the IRA, even in the most sympathetic moment in that movie, the IRA is still portrayed as, or, or really all Irish people portrayed as kind of conniving and underhanded. It was really interesting to watch this film where, although the movie never talked about or, or hardly ever talked about the politics yeah, and we're referring to Patriot Games, which was a pork chop episode. But I feel like both films really noticeably give a wide berth to engaging with why someone in Northern Ireland might take up arms against soldiers in their country. Yeah, in this movie, it's it's made into a vendetta. Brad Pitt saw his father die, and so that's what radicalized him. But there's no dive, not deep or shallow dive into the politics of Northern <laughs> Ireland. And yet, with the setup, you've got the revolutionary and you've got the cop and they're living together and they become friends and plausibly friends, believably friends. That's enough, it feels like. It was enough for this movie. Like Harrison Ford's character is sympathetic to the cause of like IRA separatist type of politics, but does not condone the use of violence in advancing that cause. Whereas like the judge, the the guy that arranges for Brad Pitt to live in his basement maybe does like you get the sense that the judge is more complicit in advancing the use of violence on behalf of the IRA. Right. Right. And that's a, that's a character that you wish we heard one soliloquy from or that got caught in some consequence other than just that Harrison Ford interrupts his party and quietly whisper, you know, or I guess goes upstairs and, and, and like traumatizes his daughter or whatever, but we never see, we never see that judge. There's a face slam into a wall mixed in there, right? Very gentle face slam. It looks like he, he had the opportunity to really interrupt that cocktail party. The idea of, of making a cocktail party uncomfortable Seems like a trope that we're starting to see more and more in these films. Oh, yeah. The, the person bent for justice uh, goes in. He's not dressed up for this black no. tie party. He's wearing no. a he's wearing a, a leisure jacket, and he's in there to, to extract justice from the host. That's right. This party's only for officers. Yeah, we've seen this a half a dozen times now. It seems to be like one of the qualities of man who seeks justice. Like this is the dream. You want to bust into that party. He doesn't flip over a plate of drinks. He He's really chill about it. And that's, that's the threat, right? The simmering rage that he's got in that moment. And this is, I think, a quality that you've called attention to quite a bit, John, is that like there is a very narrow spectrum that Harrison Ford allows himself to play within emotionally. And he stays well within those boundaries in this movie. He does. And it, and there's so many ways that you, so, there's so many kind of, it doesn't strain credulity that Harrison Ford is a New York cop, but it's not the most natural casting 
for like a guy that lives on Staten Island. But but he pulls it off, you know, like uh, he became he became, I don't know, about believable as a, as a sergeant from Staten Island, but at least like, OK, OK, you, you get it because he's like a clean he's he's uh He's super clean. Like he's, if he'd said like four more racially offensive things, I would have believed it a little bit more. Yeah, if he had, if he had if he had done one tenth of the work that Brad Pitt did to get, you know, mm. a, his his toe onto the brick of that Irish accent. If if Harrison Ford had just put a little more Staten Island into it, just a little. I had such a, a like a strange like moment watching this thinking like oh man like it's so weird that Harrison Ford is kind of playing like a like a complicated and darker character in this movie cuz like he he never does that and then I was like oh no like I'm thinking complicated dark sort of bad because I'm looking at this cop through 2020 lenses not through 1997 square lenses right like what a cop represents has changed since this movie came out in a major way. But like, he's, he's like the classic cop that we are like, we are criticizing in America a lot right now, which is the guy that lives like super, super far from the neighborhood that he polices. Like he's, he's policing in Harlem and he lives in Staten Island, like does not look like the people that, uh, you know, in his precinct. Is that a Staten Island house he lives in? Yeah, there's there's some very rural parts of Staten Island. Yeah, so that's where the cops and the firemen live. The cops live wherever they can as long as it's not in the city. The interesting thing about his cop, though, is that he covers for his partner when his partner murders a guy. And he's super tortured by it, but he covers for him. I was confused by that. It didn't seem like he was gonna in that first scene. He, he just got out of that meeting. And then, and then Edwin and him talk in the stairwell and, and, and Edwin has that moment. And again, Harrison Ford is like, does not say that he's, he has, or has plans to defend him. I got the feeling that he had that meeting with the chief of police or, you know, with the brass, because that wasn't a meeting with internal affairs. That was a meeting with the commander. And I get the feeling that he deeply implied it was an unjust killing and they all kind of high-fived because when when they came out of that meeting the commander was like didn't give his partner very much happy smiles the look on ds's face is i'm fucked and you fucked me and i wonder if that wasn't a part of the film that was rewritten afterwards like the part that part was original and then they rewrote some parts after to to muddy that effect a little bit I, I tried to get, uh-huh. as as Ben was saying, I tried to get into the headspace of 1997 and where an audience would go on the question of, you know, on the Serpico question of, yeah. do we support a cop that turns his partner in or do we, do we reluctantly, but, but in the end, forcefully support a cop that upholds the code of cops the blue silence yeah i think in 97 the it would have fallen a question like that to a film audience would have fallen across racial lines or class lines really hard 
in the sense that that conversation would never happen across racial or class lines. So your white audience would be like, well, of course he supported his partner. You know, that guy was trying to kill him. I mean, it's sad, but he's in a tough position, you know, you know, his cops are, that's a lot. It's hard work, man, being a cop. And then, you know, you'd have an, another audience uh, or or multiple other audiences that would say, like, typical, <laughs> you know, right. that would have been less forgiving. But now we're living in a in a national culture where a lot of this conversation is much more up on the table across race and class lines. I feel like in the same way that the idea of a movie president has been changed forever, uh, when we go backwards and watch films... Uh, the idea of policing is also like the way we view policing is has been changed. Like we, it's almost impossible to watch this movie without feeling, uh, feeling the feelings of today and how that has an effect on, an unintended effect on how you're viewing these characters. I think John, you were, I think you were right. Like the argument that someone has in '97 is is not in any way the same kind of argument we have about these characters today, and. The dissatisfaction you have at the end of a film where you're supposed to feel like Harrison Ford, you know, is the good cop who does the right thing at the end. He brings Rory to justice like he regrets killing a guy because he regrets killing. But, you know, he's going to retire and he's going to he's going to be okay. Like it's impossible to get there today. That's what's so disappointing about the ending of this movie, because as you were saying, Ben, it the movie does hold up. And it feels a lot less like a 1997 movie than Patriot Games or than a lot of movies we see from that era. And so the ending, when when Harrison Ford is, you know, when he covers up for his partner and then feels bad about it and is like, I've got to retire because I've broken my own internal code. And you're watching it like, oh, okay. I guess, I guess Harrison Ford is playing like an, a genuinely complicated character here. And and then we get that last 10 minutes where all the interesting stuff about the movie goes completely out the window and it turns into, <laughs> you know, it turns into like a, I don't even know what, like a, like a Bullwinkle cartoon. Like this movie could have had the heat ending hmm. where, where De Niro and Pacino are crumpled in the boat, both having been wounded by each other's guns and like holding each other's hands while one of them dies. Like there is... There's a possibility for that kind of feeling at the end that that I don't I just don't think this film could possibly rise to for whatever reason. And it's weird because these two actors are are great even in 97. I think they're good enough to pull that off, but the movie isn't capable of of giving them that. What the what 1997 wouldn't allow is for Harrison Ford to let Brad Pitt escape. Yeah, he couldn't lose. Right. And that is, I think, an indictment of 1997. But I have already long ago gone on record saying 1997 did not actually exist, that it's a <laughs> thing that we've retconned. We're all scrambling to piece together these things that all happened in our like little implanted history. You know, we, we've talked al- we've talked already in the Porkchop feed about these sort of mid to late waning years of the of the troubles in Northern Ireland Right. This is one year before the Good Friday Accords. Right. And the movie is trying and and sort of accomplishing the job of bringing the 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 American Irish into the story, the support that we or that the uh, that Irish in America gave to the IRA 
whilst also kind of living comfortably and keeping their hands clean. But there's no, but nobody in 97 could in a Hollywood movie take a definitive pro IRA stance because the politics were always too garbled to understand from, from an American perspective. I don't think they were understandable from a UK perspective. I remember around September 11th, like in the aftermath of that, reading lots of news reports about like attempts by the FBI to track down American Islamic foundations that were secretly packaging donations for jihadist terrorists and like that does not like the the amount of like scorn in that does not feel present at all in like the way this movie wants us to feel about the judge like like what this judge is doing is arranging for large sums of money to be you know moved around so that stinger missiles can be sent to ireland to shoot down helicopters like he is like working to further the violence and in a very active way, but he is not treated as like an, some kind of like mustache twirling arch villain. Did you think at some point we were going to see one of those stinger missiles fired or we were going to see inside the case even? <laughs> they didn't on. have the budget to open the case. <laughs> Come on, the devil's own. Shoot one of those stinger missiles. In that final, in the or the the penultimate scene where where Brad gets the stingers from the other bad, you know, the Wheeler Dealer Irish guy, and um and somehow manages to kill like fourteen dudes, we get a we get an improvised explosive device. Right. How much better if he had fired a stinger through that warehouse? That warehouse was <laughs> tailor made. To have a stinger fired through it. That is a late 90s warehouse for ending your action movie. And instead, we had to go to a boat. Uh. Michael Bay looks down at his dick during that scene and is like, well, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, it's total warehouse explosion blue balls. I, I agree. As soon as that boat was introduced and the idea of the missiles going on it, like, was established, I was like, well, that's one boat that's going to blow up real big. Oh, I'll say, right? Where's the big boat explosion? Yeah. We've got a boat dad. We've got a boat Brad. Give me a Harrison Ford hitting the mini trampoline on his way off of that boat into the water as it explodes. You made it, Harrison Ford. (laughs) That would be tremendous. I mean, it would be more realistic too, right? Because like... One of the things that really bumped me, one of the many things that bumped me about the end was that, like, he he jumps onto this, like, you know, harbor speed boat as it pulls away from the dock. And then, like, we have a three-minute fight scene, and then we cut to the wide shot of the boat is, like, way out at sea somewhere. Did Harrison Ford at any point go, like, you know, this is, like, Patriot Games, right, everyone? <laughs> like, how many how many movies do I need to end on a boat in this way? <laughs> There's a third one out there, I bet. How uh, long before this movie was Patriot Games? Uh, five years. It was 92. Wow. I really wanted to see, and I and I held out hope until the end, that Harrison Ford would throw his, bo- or throw his gun in the water and Brad Pitt would drop him off on the, take him back and drop him off on the dock because I wanted to see that fishing boat cross the Atlantic. Yeah. I so desperately <laughs> wanted to watch. I would have I would have watched an entire movie about Brad Pitt by himself driving that boat all the way to Ireland. 
I really was filled with the spirit of adventure. Yeah. Like that feels like something I want to do. I want to take an ill-equipped and like slap together old fishing boat and try and make it across the Atlantic. What a fun thing to do. I was so disappointed when Harrison Ford ruined it for us. There's like a James Horner minor key effect to that moment that like that pre disappointed me. Like like if the music were to swell and give us the like morning on the dock, ready to set out and and breathe that salty air, like I I would have been as ready as you were, John. But I feel I feel like the music cue told me this is not how this is going to end up. Why does everyone know about a Stinger missile? I feel like uh, you don't have to be a huge war mo- movie nerd or or war person to know what one is and how they're used. Oh, I think because the Stinger missile was a was a missile that we famously gave to the Mujahideen mm. during the Soviet Afghan war. We learned this in Rambo three. Right. The stinger was what was made famous by the fact that the CIA papered Afghanistan with them uh, in the eighties because all of a sudden, like the Afghanis were shooting down those hind helicopters one after another. There was a famous story after the, after the Soviets pulled out of Afghanistan, the, the U.S. government actually tried to buy Stingers back from the Afghanis. Like, hey, um, what about, what if we give you guys, we'll buy those, you know, get those back out of, and they, and like they bought a bunch back, but, but like 600 of them were lost. <laughs> it just sort of like fell between the cracks. Never heard of the U.S. government doing a cash uh, buyback program for, for weapons like that. It's nice to hear that it's possible. Yeah, I feel like they, they realized pretty quickly what they had done, which was don't, you know, don't give um, don't give stinger missiles just to anybody. <laughs> That's the Charlie Wilson rule, I believe. <laughs> I sent you guys a picture of a Stinger missile being fired during a training exercise. The missile itself is as long as the as the device that shoots it. This isn't just a an RPG style missile that only that that fits in the front like a mortar. It is a really big thing. It's like longer than a baseball bat. Yeah. There were 70,000 of these produced during its run. Wow. Really hot seller by the Raytheon company. Yeah. <laughs> it is certified for immediate firing. Don't let your finger slip as you're pulling it out of the case, I guess. Right. Fuck me. Just look at the size of it. How big are you? How did we feel about Brad's Irish accent? I thought it was passable. I'll go on record and say that against my, against expectations, I am a Brad Pitt supporter, but he is... Not good in everything, but in this movie, although the, although the accent came in and out and was distracting and, and constantly reminded me that it was Brad Pitt doing an Irish accent, like I never all the way went in with him. I felt like his physicality in this movie was different and I liked him. I liked him in the role. I, I, I liked his, he kept a kind of like a believable intensity 
Yeah. Do you think when you're Brad Pitt that you know every time you sit for a passport photo or anything else, you're always going to look great? Like you get those passport <laughs> photos back and you're like, well, yeah, I mean, I'm Brad Pitt. Look at, look at how great I look in a fucking passport photo. He's just a tremendous looking guy. Like he's such an interesting character because he is, vengeance is like maybe the primary motivation, but like it doesn't seem like the, his only motivation, you know, right. like this movie keeps the, keeps the politics at a 10 foot pole, but it doesn't ever feel like he is just trying to get back for the guys that killed daddy. No. And he also has this like amazing self-confidence and force of will. Like when he meets with treat Williams about the, you know, uh, like we're going to have to like hold off on, on, uh, on the deal. Like he's not afraid of, of the arms dealer guy at all. Yeah. When he walks into Treat Williams' office, once the shit has gone down and the camera pans left and pans right, revealing the thugs and how fucking cool Brad Pitt is in that scene. He's not afraid to like sit down in that chair with a couple of them standing behind him, you know? Yeah. And I think it's like charisma, but it's it's very interesting that the movie puts that kind of charisma in that character because it is a sympathetic portrayal of a an IRA, you know, quote unquote terrorist, right? Like he's in that, in that opening combat sequence, we want Brad Pitt to win the fight. You know, the, the movie is not setting us up to root for the British soldiers. Well, and it's really interesting uh, when you, when halfway through the movie, we realized that in that conversation that, that uh, Pitt and Ford have in the car, when, Harrison Ford says in 25 years of being on the force, I've only drawn my gun four times or fired it four times. And it seems like has never killed somebody. And Brad Pitt is, is like in that moment in the car, Harrison Ford thinks of him as a young guy. Mm -hmm. And he, and he's talking about like the four times he's shot his gun, expecting Brad Pitt to kind of be like, wow, four whole times. And then he says, have you, have you ever killed somebody? And there's that moment, but, but we, but it's not overplayed. It's not Michael Bade. Right. Um, and, and Brad Pitt replies by saying, I watched my father die. He doesn't say, and I've killed 15 people in cold right. blood. And like, I've drawn my Kalishnikov 17 times in, in anger. <laughs> but that feels that that's one of the, of moments that makes this, I think, a good movie because in that yeah. in that moment, Brad Pitt is also feeling sympathetic to to Harrison Ford's character and like, yeah, I get it. He always comes back to "you're a good man." He really believes in Tom O'Meara. Yeah, Tom is usefully drunk in that scene too, for story purposes. Because I think if he were one hundred percent, he would have been like, well. That was a weird answer to my question, <laughs> Brad Pitt. Like, uh, what are you getting at? You feel in that moment that there's the that the that the seed has been planted in Harrison Ford's mind that there's more to Brad Pitt than meets the eye, right? Like he looks at him differently after that, and yet the movie doesn't really explore that. It it gives us the it gives us the home invasion, which again, interesting and believable, and then gives us Harrison Ford down in the basement wondering why, of all the parts of the house, the basement's the one that got ransacked. 
that's all great if they had just left the money under the bathroom if they you know if he hadn't conveniently stood there until he heard the stairs squeak and find the missing you know like the least plausible uh sort of discovery if he had just put it together put two and two together he didn't have to find the money he could have had that whole conversation with Brad Pitt the whole confrontation of like why did they go to the basement who are you would have been a better it would have been a better moment no one asked Brad Pitt either why he was home during the day like he he showed up right in time for that fist fight in the kitchen but no one ever interrogates him about why he was home when he was supposed to be at his construction job. There's really like 20 minutes in the middle of the end that really, that really like fumble the ball. I feel like it's such an interesting set of tensions before that, that like it, I almost can forgive the like bad third act. I, I, I would never have thought that this was a movie that didn't have a script or didn't have an ending. Um, but it, it, I mean, it clarifies it. There's, there's like this, there's a tone switch. It's like almost filmed by a different cameraman, right? Like it just, <laughs> the music changes, the, the, the light changes, the whole, we, we go from a believable world to an unbelievable world just in the last kind of from the point that, that Harrison Ford arrests Brad Pitt and puts him in the car. It's, it's. Like from that moment on, everything that happens in the movie is in a different movie. What's the inflection point for that moment? When he finds the money in the in the uh, in the bathroom, and Harrison Ford or and uh, Brad Pitt comes home, and he and they have that like, "What's this money for? What are you doing here?" And Pitt is like, "Well, man, you know, life is weird and stuff and shit." And somehow Harrison Ford gets him in handcuffs, calls his partner and gets him in handcuffs and puts him in the back of the car and puts the money in the trunk. And like Brad Pitt kind of just sort of goes along. I feel like that is a red note card pinned to the wall. Like that's the moment this film coalesces around in a weird way. And it doesn't serve that moment especially well, does it? Especially because the fight in the kitchen, I thought, was so well done. That that felt like the moment where shit was going to go down and then we were going to start running downhill towards the end of this film. But it's oddly stalled for the next 10 or 15 minutes after that, right? It kind of forgets what's making it good up until that point because these guys are natural allies. Like they both, you know, believe in their Irish identity. They both believe in justice. Like Harrison Ford is... The cop that is stopping the, you know, the young cops under him from beating up a guy who stole a pack of condoms. He's he's the cop that does not feel good about covering for his partner who, you know, murdered a suspect by shooting him in the back. He believes in a in a certain kind of justice. And like, you know, I think that we're all like, you know, debating whether or not that's like a real thing or not now. But then Brad Pitt, like, is the guy that takes up arms to fight for his cause. And one convincing the other of his way would have been a much more interesting way of resolving this, like keeping them just as, you know, an unstoppable force versus an immovable object feels like a failure of imagination in a way. Particularly since it's not very much longer in the movie before Brad Pitt 
reveals that he's willing to do anything not to go to jail. If they're going to get into a life and death struggle, Brad Pitt's never going to get into handcuffs and put in get put in the back of that car in the first place. When you drive a Caprice Classic for work, how likely is it that you're also driving a personal oh, Caprice Classic? That personal Caprice <laughs> Classic. I had such Caprice Classic envy. That is such a great car. Especially because like when they get in their, their cruiser outside the police station, there's like the newer Crown Vicks yeah. like, that other officers are getting <laughs> yeah. into. And they're, yeah. they're getting into their piece of crap. <laughs> the, the fucking Ghostbusters car. It was, it was that RoboCop moment when, you know, the day RoboCop came out, those Crown Vicks were brand new. Yeah. Like yeah. none of them were on the streets yet. And they seemed so futuristic. Yeah. And in this one, he's still, he's like, no, no, no. I want the Caprice Classic. That's my, that's my car. Still in great condition. Yeah. There was a girl at my high school that drove a Crown Victoria. And like anytime you were like in the driveway to the school and you saw her car behind you, it would just be like, oh shit, what's going on? (laughs) Did I like, you know, I'm 16. I just learned how to drive. Did I like run a stop sign or something? I'm in trouble. They're like, oh, it's, it's Lauren. You know, just what those headlights look like. Yeah. I had a friend that had a a, a maroon Caprice Classic in high school. And it's just <laughs> so great to drive in that car because the headlights are instantly recognizable to anybody at the time. Just the spacing. You know, the way, the way as you're saying, Ben, you, as a teenager, you just learn what cop cars look like. Yeah. But we would drive absolutely with impunity around Anchorage because, you know, people would, would almost pull over and park. If we were behind them, <laughs> I bet the police also like oh, that might be a that might be an unmarked. Well, if you think about the Harrison Ford's green Caprice Classic in this movie, you bet it's got cop shocks and cop brakes, cop motor. Oh yeah, all it needs is a <laughs> is a cigarette lighter. There was an internet pedant that noticed something wrong with the way Harrison Ford interacted with his car. Would you guys like to hear it? Yes. Tom, as a trained veteran policeman, would always wear a seatbelt. Yet, in the close-up of him during the traffic jam scene, he is not wearing it. You're just going to be sliding around on that bench seat. (laughs) The the naga hide is not grippy enough. So much happens in that scene, and I feel like this film plays a little bit of trickery with you like you think the moment of truth is going to be the the arrest of brad pitt's character but it actually is the turning point is actually uh eddie getting shot in the street is when i really pushed myself back in my seat and was like oh well that's the point of no return it was never his arrest eddie fucking eats it and That's not only the point of no return for Brad Pitt, but it's also the last moment we have to expect justice for Eddie, delivered at Eddie, right? Eddie gets gets justice for his- He gets eye for an eye justice. He does. We're then deposited in a world where the stakes of the movie are that Harrison Ford is going to get some kind of um, redemption for having lied for Eddie- even though he's going to lay in bed the rest of his life and think about Brad Pitt dying on that boat and wonder if he did the right thing, he's not going to have this like lying for Eddie on his conscience because that gets redeemed in blood. It didn't feel like a fair trade. Like the movie is going, all right, enough of this truce, enough of feeling like Harrison Ford and Brad Pitt's characters are equivalent. 
in your mind in terms of who to root for. Like it's it's definitely saying, all right, Brad Pitt's time is over, but at the cost of any chance of Diaz receiving the justice he deserves. That was a very conflict-filled moment for me. That's that 1997 thing, though. Like It feels like the movie really tiptoes up to a fairly profound conclusion about like the use of violence in structures of power and can't quite see it, you know? And what kind of animal is this? Did, did you know that Princess Diana got in big trouble because she took Prince William and Prince Harry to see the movie when they were like underage? Whoa, cool mom alert. Well, yeah, but the problem was that like in the UK, none of these uh, IRA movies were uncomplicated like this this movie was any movie that portrayed uh, the ira in any kind of sympathetic light would have been controversial and especially considering that she's a member of the royal family and her sons are are royals given the their relationship to the ira i think this was like big tabloid splatter I, after we saw it i was really sorry that i took my kid but no she was she knew what she was doing she was giving her sons a little dose of the truth. What was the first R-rated film that your parents ever took you to? I'm really having a hard time remembering what that was, if it ever even happened. You know, my mom was very good about not letting me see, uh, or, or not, no, it's not that she wouldn't let me see R-rated movies. She would go to see them first. But my dad took me to see two films in quick succession. One of them was the uh, Al Pacino movie and justice for all like a courtroom thriller that centers on an accusation of rape in the same very short time took me to see all that jazz about Bob Fosse. Neither movie was I ready to see both of them way over my head emotionally and, and spiritually uh, I came out of both of them just like eyes spinning. What was your first R-rated movie, Ben? I think it's the same as Adam's. Uh, my first R-rated movie was Speed. Really? Yeah, my parents never took me to it, though. That's for sure. I snuck in. But the only thing bad in Speed is violence, right? There's no sex. There's no... There might be some swears, but... There's some swearing, yeah. yeah. You know what? That is a way to get back to the devil's own that <laughs> that I actually wanted to talk about, which was how asexual this movie is for a film that has Brad Pitt in it. There's a very chase romance between what? them. She, because is, she is kissing the shit out of his neck in a way that I had to pause the movie and go get a glass of water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but... That is I some mean, hot neck action. So that's how he does it in his family. <laughs> but they're interrupted by the Polaroid friend. They don't get to, they don't get to do anything. And yeah, but that's, that's what makes it hot. She's like, you don't remember me? I was, the t I was like totally so into you. And Brad Pitt's like, oh, right, right, right. <laughs> right, a woman that was attracted to me. Yeah, that does ring a bell. Which, which car was I blowing up when? <laughs> Around this time? I think my point is like, so often in thrillers, you get, you get the heavies. One of them, at least, makes the time to fuck. And 
Brad Pitt, I think, I think it says something a lot about Brad Pitt's character is that he's so single-minded. It's the thing that keeps him safe throughout this movie. It's the thing that keeps him brave in every meeting with Treat Williams. He's right. like, he's never taking his eye off that ball. Yeah, but it's the picture. It's that Polaroid that's snapped by their, by their uh, cock blocking friend <laughs> that ends up giving away the whole ghost when Harrison Ford finds it in the bag full of money. It's sex is the thing that the whole movie turns on. It's love, though, not sex. Love. Back with another one of those cock-locking friends. <laughs> Boy, I thought for a full 30 seconds about saying that, and I didn't. <laughs> not going to leave that joke unturned? Guess not. <laughs> Do you guys think that this is a better movie in 2020 than it was in 1997? I think if we could go sort through all the footage... And put a new final act on this movie, just based out of the stuff that I'm sure they filmed. Because cause it says that they had an ending and then they uh, then they went back and re- reshot it. And whatever the ending they had was that didn't work, probably didn't work in a more interesting way than this one didn't work. Get off my boat. Boot to the face. <laughs> I bet we could put together a, a, a final 10 minutes of this movie and make it really relevant to today because there were a lot of questions this movie was asking in 97 that uh, that a lot. Of, I mean, just the scene where the, where they go on an extended chase through through Manhattan to capture that black kid who's running from them. And they get him and it's like, oh, I took those condoms because I was embarrassed to take him up to the cash register. And Harrison Ford says, don't you know not to run from a cop? And he's like, yeah, but uh." I mean, that whole scene really reverberates in this in this moment. Yeah, I was amazed. Yeah. His whole like good guy cop thing of like, okay, you know, get out of here and don't run from cops. And then he kind of looks at the young white cops and is like, really, you guys like. Give me a break. The whole that whole moment where the where the young cop is like, "Look, we got him, man. We nabbed him. Look what we found. One condom. Let's beat him up now." It just really was like a prescient, you know? It's the thing that like Black Lives Matter has been ringing the bell about and it's like randomly in this totally not about racial violence movie from 1997. Yeah, and it's a and it's a moment where we are where as a 1997 audience, this is something that we are meant to admire about Harrison Ford that he recognizes the speciousness of this bust and yeah lets the kid go. But critically, like all the other cops are not recognizing that. Like they just are eager for the fray and excited to slap this guy in cuffs. Well, and interesting that the Reuben Blades character, his unjustified shooting is of a white dude and he is the Hispanic cop. And so this is because it's 1997 and Hollywood thinks we're living in a post-racial America. There's this little balance, it's a little balancing act of like, and also, you know, there are some Hispanic cops also shooting white guys for no reason. There is an unintentionally funny part in that scene where Edwin Diaz has shot that guy and like Harrison Ford comes up out of the out of the cellar with the gun, runs around the corner and finds him. Like they all find him together. Harrison Ford's like, 
you blew his entire face off. Was that really necessary? (laughs) (laughs) That moment caught in my brain and I couldn't let it go. It seemed weird, but then later on when when he's puking under the Veranzano Bridge, there were all these weird... This movie, like, pictures the Veranzano Bridge a couple of three different ways. Really interesting, the routes... Like, are they going via Brooklyn (laughs) to get back home to Staten Island? It's like, so what we're doing is we're going to Coney Island, and then we're going to get on the ramp that takes us over... When you get behind the wheel of a Caprice Classic... You just set out for the open road, guys. What you want to do is enjoy the easy breezy driving of the BQE. <laughs> you know, just open it up. <laughs> see what that cop motor can do. Yeah, feels and good. And critically, those cop shocks because the BQE <laughs> yeah. has a lot of potholes. Thumpity thumpity. <laughs> but but it, but what that what that whole like you blew his face off thing, I think that informed why Harrison Ford was puking his guts out from drinking too much. Oh. Yeah. Because it was not traumatic, not just traumatic that his partner had fired his gun in anger, but, you know, that he had seen a very violent death. I had not put that together. Because he's out there busting kids that are shoplifting condoms most of the time. Yeah. He's not seeing blown off faces very often. Like, he has that moment in the car with Brad Pitt where he asks Brad Pitt how many blown-off faces he's seen. Yeah. I seen it on my da. (laughs) (laughs) And also, like, 40 British soldiers that I've killed. (laughs) One last thing to interrogate that I think we probably should before rate and review time is that uh, Brad Pitt's da is shot while praying. Uh, Brad Pitt's character also attends a, a Catholic ceremony for... One of Harrison Ford's da's, which I'm gonna I'm gonna use for daughter, right? Uh-huh. Da can be daughter, da can be dad. It's it's like it's like aloha. I'm sure in Ireland yeah. it depends on your inflection and everybody knows what you're talking about. I think those are the only two examples of of any kind of religiosity in this film. And do you think that that this film intentionally uh, uncoupled itself from Catholicism's relationship with the IRA. No, because I think in that confirmation scene, that whole scene is really about Brad Pitt listening to the priest talk about, you know, do you renounce Satan? I do. Right, right. Uh, you know, it's basically the exact scene from The Godfather. But <laughs> Except we're not seeing a bunch of guys get whacked. Get whacked. As, as, as a weak cross cut. <laughs> <laughs> but you see Brad Pitt having that crisis listening to the priest and wondering whether he's on the right side but then coming out the other side kind of with the conviction that he is and and that's i think great acting and a moment uh where this film really like reveals its potential again and again brad pitt is we see him have that crisis and it's done mostly by his acting and by the, by the filmmaking, but it's never explicit. He never says anything out loud. No one else witnesses it. And in the end he comes out on, he comes out even more confirmed, either confirmed that he's on the path of righteousness, or I think more interestingly that he decides, I'm just not going to think about that because I'm committed to this revolutionary struggle and I don't have time for some, I don't have time for a, a girl's confirmation to throw me into a moral turmoil. But it's, it's, it really balances with Harrison Ford's crisis 
of saying like, I, I kind of believe in what you're doing, but I'm a cop and I can't allow it. It's a, a pretty tight little ball right in the heart of the movie. Yeah. It felt like one of those things that a movie does for people who know to notice it. Like this is not a film that's particularly interested in in like deep diving into the IRA conflict, but if you know a little bit about it, I think those those scenes in the church resonate in a different way. It's a nice bit of restraint too because I feel like you depict religion in a film, you kind of risk it feeling a bit like proselytization or like a condemnation of the religion. And it's, it, it doesn't feel like either in this, it's like, it's giving us a sense of what informs the internal moral calculations that this character is doing. Yeah. Like we can all agree on Catholicism is what Harrison Ford and Brad Pitt say later. <laughs> <laughs> There's a thing about the Irish relationship to Catholicism where it feels like, it feels like the Irishness comes first and the Catholicism is, is a component of it rather than, rather than Catholicism being the dominant, you know, that we get that great scene in the bar where it's like Irish against Italians. And, you know, you feel at least a hat tip to that sort of whoever wins, we lose. <laughs> 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 my, my sense of that time was that the American Irish identity was really heightened, highlighted by the troubles. And yeah. since the, you know, since the peace in Northern Ireland, you just don't get the feeling outside of Boston of like Irishness being a thing that comes up in conversation, Irishness that is a galvanizing force among people of Irish extraction. And yet right. in, in the 90s and in the 80s, you know, depending on what, what cocktail party you were in, the troubles reflected on your identity as an American. And you see that in this scene where after her confirmation, they're all back at Harrison Ford's house and there's a freaking piper like a violin and a guitar. It's and like an awesome party. <laughs> I mean, that was I. Uh, that was the kind of party that I was like, oh, wow, I've been to that party and I hate that party so much. I don't want to be at that party. <laughs> yeah, but crucially, isn't it interesting you get that depiction of a party versus the party later that Harrison Ford breaks into? That's not a fun Irish party. That's a piece of shit stuffy Irish party. Well, the stuffy party is like a, is like a politics party because there are a lot of people there that aren't Irish. That's like the judge and his fancy friends who's lost sight of his Irishness. Is it even possible to have a party with people that aren't Irish, though? You said it. Well, Ben, you've been to a Jewish party. You know, they like to party. Yeah, they like to party. And their goodbyes are not Irish. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they go on and on. Oh, <laughs> you know, you think you, you think you have uh, enough for just three days of goodbyes, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it, it 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 lasts the full eight. Yep. <laughs> yeah. All right, guys. Uh, I think it's rating and review time. Uh, if you've never heard an episode of Friendly Fire before, uh, thank you for starting with this one. Welcome. <laughs> uh, this is the part of the show where I have been tasked with uh, creating a custom rating system out of thin air. 
thin air and an object from the film that catches my attention. You know, it would have been Stinger Missiles had we seen any of those, (laughs) Uh, but we sure didn't. What we did see instead was a moment of epiphany for Sergeant Tom O'Meara. His house has just been broken into. Uh, He just got into a fist fight with some masked Irish. A really scary fist fight, I believe. Uh, You know, you don't get to know his wife very much, Sheila, but uh, her fear in that scene, I thought was, was really well acted and really made me feel some things. Like, you get that fight inside a telephone booth quality to that to what's going on in that kitchen. It I thought it was really well shot and cut as a moment, but in the aftermath, Harrison Ford is trying to figure out why these guys were in his house. I think this is after the moment where Sheila leaves and she's like, you know, all my jewelry's upstairs. Uh, the, the cash wallet is still there. Have you guys ever heard of a cash wallet? I don't have one of those at my house. Sure, cash wallet. Everybody's got one at their house. I'm surprised that you don't have one. Do I need to get a cash wallet? You think so? I think you do. Well, how are you going to pay your contractors? Scale of one to five cash wallets is not going to be the scale either because I don't know what that is. How are you going to buy Girl Scout cookies when they come to the door? You want to have a little bit of cash in a cash wallet to pay the Girl Scouts. That's that's, right. that's John's position. Keep a, keep a cash wallet. For Girl Scouts, if nothing else. Well, if I've learned nothing else from this film, I've learned that. Harrison Ford is racking his brain in his basement, and it's the moment he sees the slashed cushions that he understands. That's what this is about. They were looking for something specific, something specific in the place that Brad Pitt was staying. So it's that moment of epiphany that informs this rating system today. So like robbers breaking into a policeman's house, looking for a bag full of missile money. Did we find what we were looking for in The Devil's Own? Scale of one to five slashed cushions, it will be. Does this film do what it promises? Is a question I had. Like, I I was promised a movie about a policeman versus IRA guy, and it's not that. Instead, this is like the hand that rocks the cradle which is a kind of movie that came out in the 90s. This is, I've invited someone dangerous into my home. I did not know they were dangerous. And now what have I gotten myself into? It is a much better movie of that genre than it is a war film, certainly. Uh, But it is a pretty capable thriller. It's more interested in interrogating the morality of extrajudicial execution than anything regarding the IRA. And I think this film shines when it decides to interrogate those differences between Harrison Ford and Brad Pitt and how they feel about that kind of thing. And I wonder if this isn't just like late 90s movie nostalgia that makes me like movies like this, but I dug it. It was fast-paced and dangerous feeling. And like... Ben described earlier that unstoppable force versus a movable object ending was a little less than satisfying, but it was popcorny in in the ways that I can appreciate. If I judge it for what it is, which is like late 90s popcorn flick and not what it isn't, which is any kind of war movie at all, then I can... <laughs> like. 
I could actually see myself watching this movie again. And that's that's setting aside like the miracle of its existence at all. Like I would watch a Heart of Darkness documentary about this movie. It sounds like it was a not enjoyable experience for many, but what you see on screen does not reflect any of those difficulties at all. I'm going to give it the four cushions. Yeah, I think I think that this is one of those rare movies that like wasn't that substantial of a film in the minds of the people making it at the time and has somehow become fractionally more substantial since it was made. Like it has some some pretty sharp observations about, you know, police in a way that really surprised me and I think that for all its avoidance of like engaging with some of the tough issues, both on the IRA versus the UK stuff and the, you know, and the police violence stuff, it didn't solve either of those problems in its time and it won't now. But I think it's a very interesting document of, uh, of, of how those things were, were thought of then and I think um, also just a, a pretty fun thriller. And and it, yeah, it's like, I think it's it's not just that I'm nostalgic for mid-90s thrillers, is that I'm nostalgic for thrillers full stop because mm. I just don't feel like they make movies like this anymore. Yeah, that's a great call. And um, I enjoyed myself watching it. I, I think I will join you at four couch cushions. I also liked it a lot for most of it and was surprised by it. I was surprised by the fact that it was kind of slow moving. Um, the opening sequence of the, where Brad Pitt escapes to the country, like all of that was really capably done. It was a good fight scene. There were a lot of, a lot of bullets and a lot of headshots. And it was a, it was a pretty good little war set piece. And then it goes into this really interesting kind of slow moving psychodrama that really is engaging and smart in a weird way. And the acting is subdued. Harrison Ford is kind of on top of his character in a, in a good way. He, he still feels like a real person. All the characterizations interesting. It all leads up to something which may, which is what makes the ending even more of a disappointment because i think if this if this was just a dumb shoot 'em up movie that ending would have been fine hundreds of movies end that stupidly every year and i think <laughs> what, you, what you're saying ben is that 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 is what thrillers are now except that boat dad would have blown that boat would have blown up in a in a 5 million dollar explosion but that ending is such a come down, such a bummer that I can't go over three, whatever, uh, goat bladders or whatever. What, what, what is the rating system? Slashed cushions. You weren't even oh, listening. Sorry. I know you zone <laughs> out like for, for the, my no. monologue, but you got to at least listen to the part where I tell you what the rating system is. I wasn't zoned out. No, I was listening. I, 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 and I was struck. I was struck by how good a rating system it was. And I think I was struck dumb. I was struck <laughs> mute by it. Wow. Can I ask a follow-up question uh, after sure. your review, John? Occasionally, I will interrogate a single host's rating of a film by way of like, could I get another half cushion if we see a stinger missile or if we blow up mm. that boat? Is that all it takes? 
No, I wanted Brad Pitt to get away. All right. That's the reason. Or just to Brad Pitt to pull into Harbor and have like 400 uh, British cops waiting for him. Yeah. <laughs> the boat explodes there. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> explode that boat. <laughs> I love that ending. <laughs> <laughs> but but to your point uh, to your point Adam I think if this movie came on if I was on an airplane which of course we're never going to be on airplanes again um but if I were sitting on an airplane and and it was one of those old fashioned airplanes where they only showed one movie and you didn't have a choice I would fully watch this movie again and I think I would get a lot out of it I think it's a I think it's a really well done movie at a lot of levels I just can't I can't support what it does with itself. The director of this film, Alan Pacula, was, this was his last film. He was, uh, in 1998, the next year, he was like driving on the Long Island Expressway and, and a pipe that had like fallen off a truck in the roadway went through the, went through the windshield of his car and hit him in the head. Oh my God. Like Pacula did all the president's men. Yeah, he did some pretty great movies. To kill a mockingbird. It's a shame. Who's your guy? I'm gonna go with the uh, with the youngest daughter. I I just really felt like she was she was great comic relief in a bunch of scenes, but I, I also really felt her that she was like a scared of the of the basement. I was scared of that basement too. Yeah, I wouldn't want to live down there. Uh, my guy is the police chief. For his restraint, I kept on waiting for him to involve himself in this story a little more, and he seems very satisfied to just encourage Tom O'Meara to participate in the investigation. And, I mean, for another reason, let's be honest. The real reason? He plays Commander Riker's father on Star Trek The Next Generation, <laughs> and I just love this guy's face. Mitchell Ryan is a guy who's been acting for decades and decades. He's been in everything. Uh, he's a classic that guy. And I love making that guy as my guy. He's just awesome. What a face. One of the best faces in the business, I think. What about you, John? Who's your guy? Well, my guy is Julia Stiles. All right. B ben and I both picked daughters. Julia Stiles is pretty convincing teen. When she was on screen, I couldn't take my eyes off her, but it partly was because I was waiting for her to confirm my feelings that I don't like her. And she did. Anyway, so she's my guy. I have to say, I worked on I worked in the production office on a feature film that was shot in New York as like a summer job one summer when I was in college. And she was directing a short film that was renting office space in the same uh, building. And I saw her like on the elevator frequently for about two weeks. And uh, it was, uh, it distracted me greatly. <laughs> Did you ever say anything to her, Ben? I asked her if she was waiting for the bathroom one time because she was standing near the bathroom. <laughs> According to her filmography, this was her second film. This was the beginning for her of a... Have a long, good career. Well, one thing that's inextricably linked to our show is the 120-sided die for It decides what the next film is going to be on Friendly Fire. John, you've got it. 
I do. I've got it. The die never disappoints. Whenever I see the die. Tony's got it. You can have it any way you want it. I uh, was reading some thread. I made the mistake, of course, the other day of reading threads about Friendly Fire, which I should never do. Can't but do read, it. Yeah, don't do that. Don't do it. Don't do it. But uh, but I read some thread where uh, some Friendly Fire listeners who were also Dungeons & Dragons fans who surely came here from your Star Trek show were like, are you, is anyone else concerned about the mistreatment of the die by being put into a coffee cup or whatever it is that he does? Is anybody else like worried that the, that the die is like being abused? Classic die signaling there. And there was a genuine conversation <laughs> between people. It wasn't like crickets. Other people chimed in. Oh, I think that, you know, the die is just getting seasoned and people had feelings about the, about the green die here. My friend, the green dive, that's now going in to my freshly empty coffee cup. Fifty-nine. Fifty-nine is a World War II film from 1964, directed by Roger Corman. It's the Secret Invasion. Should we even be talking about the Secret Invasion? Hey, it's got Mickey Rooney. Wow. There we go. He's the Rickles. Unless this is one of those movies where Mickey Rooney plays like a junkie or something. A group of hardened criminals is pardoned on the condition it accepts a mission to free <laughs> a captive Italian general from the clutches of the Nazis. This is a this is a very popular World War II movie plot. Yeah, sure is. When you believe you can make the invasion happen, and then it does. That's the secret invasion. <laughs> yeah, I'm, a, I'm putting this invasion on a piece of foam core and hanging it over my desk. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Mickey Rooney plays a, a member of the IRA in this movie. Hey. Whoa. That's fun. That is fun. Nothing's more fun than the IRA. If we have three IRA movies in a row, we uh, we can't have a fourth. So nothing's more fun than a ninety-minute movie on Friendly Fire. Love that. Oh yeah, that's that's a great way to live. <laughs> well, uh, I'm looking forward to that. And in the meantime, we're going to leave it with Rob's. So for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a maximum fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. The show is produced by me, Rob Schulte, and our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. Our podcast art, it's by Nick Dittmer. Need more Friendly Fire? Take a crash dive into the back catalog. Last year we reviewed They Were Expendable from 1945, a World War II movie about a PT boat directed by John Ford and starring, you guessed it, John Wayne. Feel like supporting our show? Then head on over to MaximumFun.org join. And for as little as $5 a month, not only will you receive our Pork Chop bonus feed, you'll gain access to all the Maximum Fun bonus content. Don't forget... You can now follow us on Twitter and Instagram under the handles FriendlyFireRSS. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week 
with another episode of Friendly Fire. Fund.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.